Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. With me, I have a very special guest today, Numan Ahmed, the co-founder and director of Crep Protect. He's also co-founded a whole bunch of companies, Collect and Presented by, amongst others as well. I think the holding company you were saying, Numan, is Undercover Brothers. Numan, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. As I was just telling you, IFG is all about inspiring the young generation and the new generation of entrepreneurs with success stories that we've had. And you and your brothers, mashallah, you've sold your products in 52 different countries. It's probably more than that now. Alhamdulillah, multi-million turnover. You have deals with all sorts of leading brands like Adidas and others. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. It'll be good to share our story. I think we went into a business which isn't seen to be quite traditional. So it's quite relatable to the younger generation in particular. But more importantly, it's something that we really like doing. And hopefully, we hope to inspire many more people along our journey. Definitely. It's quite a cool whole area, isn't it? You guys are not doing boring stuff. It's like, it is as cool as it gets. Yeah, I think for us, it's, we still hope to be seen as young guys. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think for us, it's, we had a passion for fashion and trainers in particular from a quite a young, tender age. And we actually turned that passion into a real business. And we had many offshoots since then. And that allowed us to essentially build a premium brand. And subsequently, we are recognizing the industry. But more importantly for us is just to be seen as Muslims that have gone into an industry which is once ignored, heavily dominated by traditional businessmen and businesses which is just really quite weird shuke so how exciting can shuke be right but it was just about creating a premium brand but doing it in a way that resonates with the consumer we like people to look at our group of business and say look that's quite exciting that's the impression i got i mean you've got a whole bunch of celebrities that talk about you and that sort of thing so i'm like this is pretty cool stuff (laughs) noman you mentioned your childhood there and how this was a kind of a passion from the start it'd be great to hear about where you grew up how your childhood was and if you think that had a bearing on what happened with your entrepreneurial career as well yeah so alongside myself we are three brothers alhamdulillah it is myself my eldest brother Rizwan and the middle brother so to speak he's older than me but he's still the middle brother which is Imran so Three brothers, and from a quite a young age, our father, he came from Pakistan in the 70s, and he basically came to the UK like everyone else that immigrated during that time for a better life for him and his family. So we essentially were all born up north. So we were born in a town called Burnley, and as time went on and we got older, my dad realized that for prospects for his children was to take the leap and move to London. For someone who, obviously, my dad was a factory worker, so he was heavily reliant on labor work. He wasn't particularly well educated. He had a vision of 
making sure that his kids aren't really working as hard as him on a job that, to be honest, where education and, and other aspects and skills can be brought into the day-to-day job. So my dad took the leap of faith, so to speak, and decided to move to London. So I'm sure you can appreciate those days. And that was London's like a completely new country. Yes, uh, in terms of the expenses and the prices, even the housing prices. So my dad, basically, his vision was to move to London to give us the best start in life, which that sacrifice will never be forgotten. We essentially then moved to London. I was one years old at the time. My older brother, he's nine years older than me, and then Imran is seven years older than myself. So they were nine years old, seven years old. I was one. We moved to Wembley, North-West London. We moved to Wembley. We still have that house now, as it's got a lot of memories in it. And essentially, and that's where my childhood, I'd say, began. We lived in a three-bedroom semi-detached house. My mum used to sew dresses because that work was flexible because she used to look after us and do the school runs. And my dad was doing a variety of different jobs. At one, he used to work in a bakery at one point. He used to work in a metal workshop. So it was very much labor-intensive work. But what was resonated from us from the start was dad used to wake up in the morning, he used to go earn a living and he used to provide for his family. So from a very tender age, we were taught to stay united as a family and look after one another. So as time went on, we did paper rounds. I got let off because I was younger. So my older two brothers did paper rounds in the mornings, waking up very early and going to the local news agents and delivering papers. And naturally, they would earn money. They would give money to my mom, buy something for themselves, and buy me a little treat as well. We had really good unity from the start. Sounds like you had a good deal there. Yeah, to be honest, I get it all the time from my brothers. Listen, you haven't seen anything compared to what we've seen it. So I always play it down. But I know they work particularly hard because I was the younger one. But essentially, seeing our dad work particularly hard and make a good living, and more importantly, make a halal living for us as kids. And I've seen that. It was almost like a role model for us. And as time went on, my mum was more about the safe bet. Go get your nine to five job, wake up in the morning, put your tie on and get to work. That is someone who's who's working. It's a safe bet. You're getting your salary every month. And that was what my mum wanted because she was more about the safe bet. Whereas my dad, on the other hand, was like, listen, you guys are staying in my house. You don't have any commitments. So try new things. Try new things. Try different businesses. That's really interesting. Uh, to be honest, it was a critical point in this conversation was the fact that being actively encouraged to try new things, and if you fail, it doesn't matter because what you got to lose. That essentially really helped us because from when that started, I was a younger one. I used to learn from my brothers. I used to hang around my brother's friends. And so naturally, my group of friends or, or people or associates we grew up with but naturally older than myself. And again, going back to the unity part was whatever we did, we did together as brothers. And that was essentially why we were so intertwined in each other's and that's, and that's quite surprising, Naman, given that there is quite an age gap between you and your other brothers, right? Exactly. I think we had a, quite a good brotherhood. So even though I was younger, I was very much involved. It wasn't like, oh, the little annoying brother, just put him in another room and let me crack on. It was quite good because we had a good brotherhood where I was quite involved. I used to know their friends, their friends used to know me. When they used to have conversations about things, I always used to be there and just listening. So for us was the encouragement our father gave us. Sadly, he's not with us anymore. May Allah grant him the highest place in Jannah. So it was quite important for us to just remain that unity and for me when I started school Imran was very much into computers and building computers and that was essentially where the entrepreneurial spirit started to come out once you start to understand the value of money and learning and putting your skills to the real test so to speak so I was then probably year eight at school I was building computers from raw parts which I source individually rather than someone going to a computer store and getting a ready-made computer I had to buy all the parts and build them I had to build them myself at home I had to sell it to people at school 
and that was a skill that I learned from my brother because he used to build computers, I used to be around him. We used to have a strong interest in that. So that taught me the basic skill of markup, how much profit to make, and also the starting the skill of negotiation. So then it started to open up a can of worms because at this time, entrepreneurial juices are flowing quite well. My older brother was a property advisor. Imran was in IT and myself, I was still in school. So again, it was very much like, yes, my two brothers had their day jobs, but we almost had our bedroom where we used to sit down and we used to just scour the internet, come up with new ideas, come up with things to sell. So before you know it, we looked at the China market and actually realized on places like Alibaba and some of these platforms where things can be bought so cheap but imported in from China. That was a massive eye-opener for us because people were selling things on eBay, but we were like, how are they selling that item so cheap? And we just couldn't get ahead around it. So then we figured out that people are going to China to buy things, and then we had to understand the import, the import duties, the markup, minimum orders. What do we buy and how do we negotiate a good deal? So from China, we started to buy gadgets. That gadgets then came into the UK. That was quite exciting. We opened a package, we put it on eBay, and we're like, wow, it's sold on eBay. People actually want this. So again, during this whole process, we're all doing it together as brothers. So it's not like one brother's doing it and then the others are, are doing other things. We're very much unified in what we're doing. But at the same time, everyone had their day jobs. I was still studying in school. So fast forward, keeping onto that mindset and that mentality was my brothers went on to uni. They, mashallah, got degrees. I then went on to university. I got my degree in aerospace engineering. Naman, sorry to interrupt in retrospect, do you think going to uni was a useful thing or not? Definitely. If you look at university and you look at the actual field I was doing, in hindsight, someone could take a view on things and say, you're not even utilising the academia which you've studied and done a mastery in. But for me, it was all about the competencies and the attributes of that university process that takes you through life. So... It was about working under pressure, working towards a deadline, working independently, working as a team, prioritizing what's important today and what's not important. Working to a deadline, what was more important is keeping key stakeholders happy, whether it's your supervisor, your lecturer. So all of these qualities really allow you to excel in business. Although experience, again, is very important, I believe as well, but because we had the experience of our side hustles, the professionalism that you're exposed to in university, etiquette about how to write emails, etiquette and how to write and do presentations for a start, middle of end, executive summaries, evaluating a problem and taking a reader through a journey. All of these skills were actually picked up by going to university. So I wouldn't say, obviously, I'm not utilising some of the some of the mass equations I'm doing at what I studied, but in terms of the competencies and the etiquettes that you pick up in university, definitely allows you now in a high-level business that we're doing now, it's things that make you confident. You can go into a room and be confident and pitch something and stand and give that body language of confidence to your peers. And those are things you picked up at uni. And these are things that we were tasked with. And working under pressure without a shadow of the adult, that is a very important skill having pressure on you and then delivering on that pressure. It's really helpful. Jazakallah khair for that. I think that's a question that a lot of people who are thinking about university often think to themselves. And we sometimes get situations with the angel syndicate where you get startup founders who are at university and they're thinking of potentially dropping out and that sort of thing. Our advice is almost always that, look, you should probably get your degree and then the world's your oyster. You can do what you like. Yeah, definitely. I think it's very important to, 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 because as you grow up, you're a teenager, you go through school, whether you did things like what we did, we made some money on the side, we done the side hustles, but the professionalism is taught at uni and how to conduct yourself. And I think I learned significantly from that. The branch of the business, which I look after, and I look after the business development, our major clients and our biggest contracts. So for me, was yes it was a completely different world transitioning 
when I came out of university. And even while I was at university, I was buying and selling trainers. And that was a passion of mine and my brothers from a very, very young age. Me and Imran were lucky enough to be the same size, so I used to borrow his trainers, clean them up and put them back in the wardrobe so he wouldn't even know about it. <laughs> so for us, we used to buy trainers as expensive as we could afford, but then led us on to say, there's nothing really out there that basically we could trust on cleaning or caring for our shoes. Yeah. And that then opened up, obviously, the opportunity with Crep Protect. So, Numan, after university, what was the kind of first entrepreneurial venture you launched into and how Undercover Brothers Collect presented by Crep? Do you want to talk us through how each of them came about? Definitely. So I completed university, I got my degree, and then I worked in industry. So I worked for BAE Systems, and I relocated away from London, and I went to Blackburn, where the BAE Systems within our field is one of the largest aerospace manufacturers in the world. It was a really good opportunity to have a blue chip company like that on my CV, And more importantly, for me, it was very much about learning. I wanted to learn and be exposed to different parts of industry and see what I can learn from that. So Alhamdulillah, I got a good opportunity to go to BAE Systems, work in industry as an engineer, but at the same time, do my MPhil in Bradford University. So I was still very much working alongside academia, but at the same time, having hands-on experience being an engineer. But at this point, I was very clear. I was very clear on, I am going to work for myself. At this point, I was under no illusion that this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I was very clear on, I am not that person. But when the time comes, I need to develop. And self-development for me is very important. So during that time I was at BAE Systems, I obtained a PRINCE2 project management qualification, an APMP, a diploma in management. So all of these things, I was very keen on making sure I developed myself. I wrote a technical paper which got published. For me, it was about making sure I continue to develop myself. But again, the end goal for myself was always starting something that I was fully in control of alongside my brothers. That makes sense. What were your brothers doing at this point out of interest? So during this time, they were still in the same field. So Riz was in property, Imran was in IT. But obviously, Grant had moved around to different companies, but very much had a day-to-day job but on the side we used to conjure up different plans and try different things buy and sell on ebay we used to import things from china and just be active entrepreneurial and do you think Norman, that is because a lot of that chimes with what me and mohsen get up to because we met at uni about eight nine years ago now and we've been up to all sorts in the interim until finally we did ifg But what would your advice be to people who perhaps they've got that entrepreneurial itch and they're in their day jobs at the moment? Do you think that there's a benefit to trying things on the side? And what are the benefits that could come out of that? A hundred percent. I think for me, I always tried things on the side and I did things on the side, whether it's buying and selling cars, whether it's selling computers, but it allows you to untap into your own hidden skills because if you don't do that, a lot of people say, oh, to be honest, it's not for me. I just want to work on a nine to five job and I want to get a nice secure salary. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's important for me to have ambition and having a nine to five job allows you to have that security, but it also gives you that space to play on the side. So for me, definitely having a side hustle, so to speak, is important for me. But obviously it has to be well calculated. You can't aimlessly go into something if there's an opportunity, but it's important to have that open mindset and be accessible and be able to jump on something where you think is a good opportunity. It's almost like you need to have the door open in your head and then only then you're going to be able to capitalize on opportunity. If you've closed that channel in your brain, you're going to just walk past opportunities all day long. So side hustle for me, because of someone who's done it from a very tender age, I think it's very important. And that's how entrepreneurs are born. The infancy of being an entrepreneur is actually understanding that doing something on the side and juggling many things at the same time. And that what comes down to a side hustle. Agreed. And I think 
you fail and you learn a lot from the failures as well. But Numan, you were going to tell us about how you set up your ventures before I sidetracked you. Yeah. So again, going back to obviously university. So I did university. I worked in industry, but at the same time, while I was at university, my room at university was full of trainers. So these trainers I had to buy from wholesalers in the UK and I had to sell it on as a profit. And that taught me how to merchandise shoes on eBay, taught me how to take pictures and make sure the laces are done right and merchandise them in a way that make it desirable to the consumer. So these are skills I was picking up and understanding the buying behaviours of the consumer is done. So those are things that I really picked up on. But again, very much interested in fashion and training. So fast forward, went to work for BAE Systems. I worked there for a year and a half, done a master's in Bradford University while I was working. And then again, mindset was always, yep, yeah, I'm going to do something with my brothers. Again, my brothers were still in London. And I was going back every weekend and we were always talking about new things, new ways to make money. And that's when the first glimmer of an untapped market came to mind. And that was Cropotech. Again, being guys who are very passionate about trainers and wall trainers, we didn't really have anything that we could say that there's something out there that we can trust. We're going to spray on our trainers. There were many shoe care products out there, but if you spent, I don't know, a couple of hundred on some shoes. You're thinking, to be honest, I'm not going to trust it. And that was missing for us. And so we used to take out the toothbrush, we used to get some soap, and we used to clean our shoes ourselves in a very traditional and delicate manner. So during this time, we then looked into an application that we can use on trainers that allow people to trust it. Because there's nothing out there that was positioned in the premium sector that we could safely say, I'm going to buy that product, I'm going to spray my shoes, I can be confident it's going to work. So there was a video on YouTube around a nanotechnology. And nanotechnology was quite interesting because visually it's really amazing where it provides an invisible waterproof layer on a surface and liquids are actually repelled away from the surface and it doesn't penetrate, which I think we saw it on a fabric where someone squirted some water on a fabric or it was a carpet or something like that where water was just beading away and just sitting on the surface and not being penetrated. So we were like, wow, that looks really good. Nanotechnology isn't a secret. That's been around for a very long time. So what was important for us was nanotechnology was always used for industrial applications. So whether it's masonry or places where you find in DIY shops. So more of an industrial type of tool. So for us was, why don't we create a nanotechnology inspired shoe protection spray that allows people to have waterproof shoes? Again, someone said, oh, that's not really new. But for us, it was new. We felt there was nothing out there in the market that was primarily position to premium shoes the premium shoes and expensive shoes that can be sold at a premium price point so that's when we had that blue sky vision that eureka moment so to speak was we're going to speak to a factory so again google's your best friend at this point we found a lot of factories that specialize in nanotechnology and there was loads in europe so we spoke to a lab in germany and they specialize in nanotechnology and nanotechnology coating we had the initial phone call with the guys and we said, look, we're trying to create something that is particularly for a shoe. They said, to be honest, we haven't done something like this before. So we said, okay, it is something that you can develop. Because what was very important to us now, because it's application for shoe, it cannot damage the look, feel or performance of a shoe. And that was very important for us. I being the consumer ourselves, to make sure it doesn't damage the look, performance or feel of the shoe whether it's suede or if it's a running shoe, then it needs to be breathable. So cut a long story short, we went back and forth for a year and we felt like, yeah, right. We have got a product here that works, that we think that works quite well, where we would spray it on the shoes, put the shoe underneath the kitchen tap and water didn't used to penetrate through the fabric and it used to slide straight off. So visually, it looked pretty amazing. So at this point, we didn't have loads of money. We had, I think, between us, we had about £15,000 between us. So at this point, we're all still working. 
But then we're saying, right, let's place our first order for this spray. So we placed our first order. It was a three-week lead time. So during these three weeks, we were like, right, we need to make a company and a brand. So where do you start on making a premium brand? So what was very important to us was our London identity. We grew up in London. The fashion influence came from London. And that's where the name was born, was Crep. Crep was a London slang, which we used from a young age and even in school, which we refrained from using at home because mum didn't like us speaking in slang. But we thought Crep resonated with our London identity. And that was a slang which our target market and our consumers knew exactly what we're talking about. And it had an urban twist to it. So naturally, we called the product Crep Protect. And we were very clear at this point, we are going to create a premium product. What year was this, Naman? This was 2013. So 2013, we all made the decision to leave our day jobs and all focus on this. Wow. Uh, At this point, I was married, I had a young son, and I moved in back with my mum. I had to negotiate with my wife and convince her this was a good idea, which, alhamdulillah, she supported me all the way. But... For us was, right, if we're going to do this, we're going to take this seriously. Yeah. Because we felt like we're onto something quite amazing. Uh, And Nomad, you were literally just bootstrapping. You hadn't raised any external capital or anything. You were just literally off your own savings. Exactly. £15,000. This is what we had. We placed our first order, which took us down to £7,000. And we created the brand Crop Protect. Again, we are very clear at this point, we are going to create a premium product where we are going to sell at a higher price, but we're going to position this so people know it's good value for money. Then it started. CrepProtect.com was created. We took to our smartphones, and this was the era of Instagram just coming to life. So we took to our smartphones. We got our first delivery, and it was cans with a paper label on it that said CrepProtect with our brand colors, which was a purple can and our distinguished logo. So we got the product now. We had a small office in Wembley, which was our office and warehouse. So we created CrepProtect.com and we took to internet. We took to CrepProtect.com and we said, we're going to sell this product online. And again, being an aerosol product, these are things we started to pick up on the challenges around distributing the aerosol product. It's a highly flammable product. It's aerosol. It can't be just popped in the envelope and just sent next day delivery because it can't be flown because of the hazardous nature of the product, or it can be flown at a very, very expensive surcharge. So again, these are learnings that we picked up on the way. But we went to CrepProtect.com, we created a page, and we just had a single product, the can. And we created our Instagram account, and we started to create videos. Create videos just from our smartphones, on shoes which are quite desirable, from our own collection. And we started to pour ketchup on it. Ketchup and another items which visually looked like, wow, what are you guys putting on the tree? And how is that ever going to come off? And then naturally, when we exposed that specific shoe underneath a tap or poured water all over it, the ketchup needs to wipe straight off, leaving no stains or no residue. So visually, from a marketing perspective, that was quite impactful for the consumer. So we started to create videos like that and we started to get, some good responses on Instagram. And then we sold a few on our website. Yeah, still not crazy numbers, but we sold then 20, then 30. So it started to be quite well. This is where I think a lot of our audience might benefit. Like in the early days, were you using just pure social media organic reach or were you getting out and about talking to people as well? Or were you using ads online? What kind of like strategy were you using and what worked for you so at this very early stage what was very important to us was we didn't have the money so we had to make sure that if we did have the money we would have done other things but at this stage it was purely organic but it was content we created and owned and we didn't have the money to do paid ads or have fancy exhibition spaces we didn't have the money for it so what we did we created an organic set of content on our social media. But what was very important is we were very clear on who our consumers were. We have to be very focused on 
who is your consumer? And you need to talk to them in their language. So we created a bunch of content on our phone, very low budget. But again, because it was visually impactful, it did really well in terms of engagement. So we sold some items on our website, and then we started to get some inquiries from stores. So these are, again, independent stores where we really like your product and we want to sell it in our store. So that was quite humbling for us because this is the first time we're actually dealing to trade now. We're not going direct to consumer, we're dealing to trade. So we sold to a few independent stores. Independent stores, the volume is never going to be massive. But again, it was a business-to-business transaction. So we sold 24 cans to a store and then another store. Again, what was very important for us from the beginning was we were very clear on who are we going to allow to sell our product. So that was a pretty bold move from us, from being a startup, on being very selective on who can be a Cryptotech stockist. Because we wanted to make sure that everything we do as a company is to maintain that price point. And that price point was £10 for a can. So everything we did from a marketing angle, from a brand positioning angle, from the retailers we picked to sell our product was, if it allows us to maintain our premium price point, it's a good idea. If it doesn't, and the retailer sells more affordable shoes or shoes which are less desirable from a fashion perspective, we decided not to position our product within those stores, only because we wanted to have a very clear message for our consumer. And we wanted those consumers to be loyal to us. If we started to diversify too much and dilute our brand message, our price point will grow quickly from £10 to £7 and then to 5 And then we would have lost that premium angle we worked so hard to build. So we started to sell to a few independent stores and then we started to get hit up by some international stores. These stores, again, very small level boutique stores. But what's important here, they were boutique stores. So it's almost like if you have your product positioned in some of these stores, it makes you look good. So we were hit up by some German stores. And again, in the sneakerhead world, Germany leads the way in terms of boutique sneaker stores. So this was really good insight. We were learning about the European market as we were going along. But what was important for us was these stores, we used to call them tier zero stores. So different stores, we used to tier them in different zones, but these stores were tier zeros. And we would call a tier zero store, which would have shoes that no one else would have. So you wouldn't go to a JD or Foot Locker and find these shoes, which these boutiques have. These boutiques are carefully selected by Nike and Adidas and the brands to sell a very unique, carefully handpicked selection of shoes, which again, if your product was in that store, again, you were seen to be a premium brand. Because of the social media and the talk around ketchup can be put on shoes and the ketchup test. Everyone wanted to buy Creptotech, take it home and do the test. So it's almost like a party trick. Everyone was just really wanted to show people because it was visually quite amazing. Heinz must have absolutely loved you guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the content piece that made us go viral was actually the ketchup test. We then put a video on YouTube. And before you know, we had hundreds of thousands of views and we were like, wow, everyone just really finds this amazing. And we did too. When we first got our first prototype can, we were like, wow, the world needs to see this. So again, we're selling to some retailers. Again, pretty low level numbers, nothing. We're not selling big numbers. Again, the independent retailers allow you to position yourself as a premium brand, but the volume is still very low. We then thought, right. We have got a good name in the market in terms of shoe care. We, we are positioned the way we want to be positioned. We carried on relentlessly creating content on Instagram and videos of different shoes, but different tests and different day-to-day problems someone might have in terms of stepping on someone's shoes or dropping a drink on their shoe. Everything you could think of day-to-day, we were creating content around it. But what was important is we started to spend a bit more money and budget on the actual shoe. So the shoe started to go up in price range, which started to make it even more daring, the content. So at this point, we're selling online quite steadily. Again, not massive numbers, but we've got a good name in the market now. We then said, right, we are going to now pitch to a premium retailer, for example, JD Sports. We thought we were ready. We went to JD Sports and another larger retailers, and we were told, 
10 pounds for a shoe spray is quite expensive. Traditionally, shoe care sold around four to six pounds. 10 pounds for a shoe spray is quite expensive. It's quite high end, especially if someone's spending 40, 50, 60 pounds on a pair of shoes. They're not going to want to spend 10 pounds on a shoe care product. And that basically didn't allow us to sell into a retailer that could give us the volume. So we went back to the drawing board and we were like, we are not going to lower our price point because we know, based on the feedback we've got, and we know the market and the successes we've had direct to consumer, we know the consumer wants it. So we went back to the drawing board. Because what you've got to remember, shoe care is a very traditional part of selling shoes. Shoe care has been around for many, many years. And it's almost the push sell, the last push sell that you do when you get to the counter. You buy your shoes and you're push sold something that you don't really want. You buy it because you almost feel sorry for the guy behind the till because he's trying so hard to sell you something. You buy the product, you go home, you throw it underneath your bathroom sink. There's no brand loyalty, there's no engagement, and you bought it because... Someone told you it was a good idea. So that mindset was very fixed and had a cloud over shooter. And we had to change people's perception. So that was very important for us. Is we're not going to follow that model. We're not going to be that double glare salesman pushing product down people's throat and forcing them to buy something. We wanted to lead the consumer by emotion. And we wanted to make sure that we create a product that is well marketed outside of those stores. So when the customer walks in, it's a pull sell rather than a push sell. And that allows you to be a premium brand. When a consumer is drawn to your product rather than you pushing a product down the consumer's throat. So that was a pinnacle point for us because we had two things to do. We had to convince the consumer to change their perception on shoe care. And we also had to change the perception of the retailer on shoe care. So the retailer have sold shoe care for many, many, many years. If you're an accessory buyer, you're in charge of shoe care in the business. You're almost seen to be quite junior. You're a junior buyer. There are more senior buyers, always the footwear buyer who buys the trainers. The junior buyer buys the accessories, the shoelaces and shoe care. And the accessory buyer always wants to become that footwear buyer. That's like the stepping stone. So when it came down to retailer budgets, Accessories and shoe care always got the bottom end of the budget. And if any budgets were going to get slashed, it was going to be shoe care. It's almost seen to be a segment of the business which, yeah, we have to sell shoe care, but we don't really think it's a very important part of our business. That challenge, changing the perception and the mindset on shoe care internally and externally was a big challenge. A couple of questions out of that. One is, I was actually messaged by my friend, co-founder Mohsin, who was asking, I need to ask you how you guys managed to get into these massive stores like JD Sports and others. How did you guys do it? We were pushed back initially, then we went back again. And this time we created a brand identity deck about who we are, the successes we have, and why the consumers are asking about our products. So we then pitched to Foot Locker Europe. So Foot Locker Europe, I've got 650 stores across 19 European countries. The HQ is based in the Netherlands, and they have always traditionally sold shoe care for 30 years. And we had to go to Foot Locker, and we managed to convince them, based on our reputation, which was already in the sneaker care market. Remember, at this time, we've already sold to some independent stores in Germany, which have got a very good name for themselves. So Foot Locker were aware of that. So Foot Locker said, right, Selling shoe care, and again, we're talking euros now, so we were 14 euros for a spray, which again is quite expensive if you're looking at traditional shoe care. We pitched a footlocker and said, look, we've got a product here and we know the consumer wants it. And we are very confident based on the fact that we have sold this in different independent retail stores in Europe and we can market this product to make sure that the consumers coming to your store wanting this product rather than your sales staff pushing it. And that was our sales proposition was, we are a premium brand. We don't want you to push sell our product. We want you to place our product on the shelf, a fair game alongside everyone else, and we will show you that the consumer will go and pick our product. They gave That's us a shot. That's really interesting. 
they gave us a chance. And for us, we were about making decisions about longevity, not the quick wins. So it's quite bold for us to say, listen, we will make sure that the consumer comes in and is gravitated toward the product because we were confident in our marketing outside of those stores. And then marketing came and our Instagram followers started to grow. We started to create more content. So again, we went to Foot Locker. Foot Locker said, all right, fine, we'll give you a shot. We've got 650 stores, but we're going to trial you in 50 stores. So we were trialed in 50 stores. And at this point, we walked out the meeting room and we were sweating. This is our break. So we're going to sell and let's actually see on the main stage how our product performs. So we went back to the drawing room. We were promoting, we were pushing on our social media, go get the items at Foot Locker. And again, our premium position was shining through. Everyone started to become a brand ambassador for Crepitech. And at this point, people are buying product, getting hold of Crepitech, and all doing their own catch-up stuff. So again, hashtag Crepitech was trending. And we had a lot of good home-created content, which was quite amateur, but it was what was important to it. It was very organic. So we had consumers shouting about our product rather than us, which is really strong. So Foot Locker then said, well, we're going to trial this product for six weeks. They tried their product for six weeks. And then after six weeks, we will then decide the results of it. After two weeks, we smashed the sales. We were one of the best-selling accessories we've ever had. We went from 50 doors to obtaining a PO for 650 stores. So again, that was a very overwhelming feeling. I remember that news I got on the phone from the Foot Locker buyer, who now works for us now, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. It was very humbling for us to say, wow, it's on the main stage with a retailer that's got that many outlets, and it was a success. So again, the other problem here was, all right, we're going to get ordered for 650 stores. We need to buy a product. And we're not going to get paid until 30 days because of standard credit terms. Alhamdulillah, we again at this point, with no borrowed money, very much self-funded from our first £15,000. We're lean on how we spent our money in terms of sold product, bought more product. So we juggled it quite well. And then from when we sold into Foot Locker, things started to sell quite well. We then sold into JD Sports. And then from then it escalated and we were on the main stage. Alhamdulillah, we didn't need to do any outbound sales. Retailers were coming to us very rapidly and we literally would qualify on who we would sell to, who we wouldn't sell to based on their product range. And that was a very pinnacle part for us was we needed to make sure we keep pushing the premium angle and make sure we still look after the boutiques and sell to the boutiques because that allows us to sell the volume that we did at Foot Locker and JD Sports. That's incredible. Noman, I'm just aware of the time and I really wanted to ask you a few more questions. So maybe if we do these like as a quick fire kind of thing. I mean, I think it's really, really insightful. And I think a lot of product companies, they fundamentally miss perhaps because they've got money that they've raised and they don't have to be scrappy that they really should be creating content to drive people to your brand. And I'm checking out your Instagram and your YouTube, and that's fantastic. It's fantastic stuff. And I really wanted to ask you, like, how do you approach, especially in the early days, how did you approach the content creation, particularly for the YouTube side of things? Because like pictures, perhaps you can relatively easily create, but video is a lot harder to do. Did you just do it yourself? Did you pay people to do it? How do you guys do it now? We pride ourselves on our marketing and creating content. We were awarded a marketing award from the Draper's Footwear Awards as one of the best innovators in shoe care. What's humbling for us is we have many marketeers, marketing companies use us as examples. We've basically created a team organically from the start that actually understands the brand's DNA. We are very hands-on on this department from the very start and we created content creators that actually understand the vision what we are trying to do we never subbed any of our marketing work we have an in-house marketing team we have an in-house pr team all of our content creation is done in-house we've never used agencies because we feel like the identity of what we're trying to achieve can only be given by us yes we have invested over the time in terms of equipment we've got studios 
we've got a larger content creation team. But very much so, we've grown it bit by bit. And we were very clear on, we started to challenge the status quo. If someone was tell us that you could sell shoe care for 14 euros, you'd be laughed off the stage. So we were very clear on, let's not follow the status quo. Let's not follow the traditional route. Because we were able to change someone's mindset on shoe care, we know how to market this product. And no one can tell us how to do it. That was our outset from the beginning. And we won numerous marketing awards in terms of our content. We've sent trainers into space. We've got brand ambassadors from DJ Khalid to Deli Ali. And what you've got to remember, these guys are respected within their respected fields. But to get them to promote a shoe care product, which traditionally, how exciting can shoe care be, right? For them to promote a shoe care product, they have to love the product. And they, sure, have, to yeah. and they have to believe in the product. They're going to put their name on it. We then subsequently aligned ourselves with other brands that allowed us, from a marketing angle, further sustain our premium brand positioning. We are license holders for the NBA, where we, on the game and game and season time, we create co-branded products, which are NBA branded, and we sell into the market during game time. We are license holders for New Era, where we create a head protection spray. So we almost seem to be pioneers in the protection game. And then, alhamdulillah, that allowed us then to be labelled in 2018 and 2019, the second fastest growing independent business in the UK. And if someone told you a shoe care product and a shoe care business will become the second fastest growing independent company in the UK, no one will ever believe it. Yeah, for sure. The more I hear about your story and the more I look into what you guys have done, I'm even more impressed by what you've achieved, particularly because you essentially had to bootstrap this whole thing. And I know that retail and having a product business is very cash flow intensive as well. So it's not just creating the brand, delivering on that. It's also about just actually creating the business infrastructure that allows you to stay afloat. Because exactly. It has been a challenge. Running your business is stressful at times, but it's immensely rewarding. And you make your job your hobby, that way you're never working. And that was very clear for us from the beginning is we are going to create a product that is bought, not sold. And that motto, we have that printed in our office, very big. And that is the motto we lived by when we created this product was we're not going to create product that is sold. We're going to create that bought. That allowed us to always, if it's going to add brand value, we're going to do it. So from a marketing angle, our overheads are significantly geared around our marketing. We were on the Financial Times, we done an interview with them not too long ago, and they do a league table on FT1000 where they rank the fastest growing companies in Europe. And in fashion, we were the fastest growing fashion brand in the whole of Europe, which again was crazy to hear and understand. And for us, it's we continue to push forward. We as a brand now, alhamdulillah, we on 52 countries. We sold 16 million units worldwide. We have a vast array of shoe care products. And again, we then diversified in different areas where we've got a premium streetwear store, which is called Presented By. We sell sought-after rare sneakers in a boutique setting. And we're opening a store in Mexico, Dubai Mall, London. We have our own store, Le Bon Marche in Paris. So again, everything we do is about premium brand positioning. And our stores, from a fit-out perspective, interior design perspective, the premium nature of our position resonates through all of our brands. And then just quickly touching on Collect, the marketplace for buying and selling rare sneakers. Again, a massive market where this segment of the market is growing by billions each year. And us being quite influential in this game, we purchased a German-founded company called Collect. We acquired that company. And it's now under our ownership and it's one of Europe's leading marketplaces for buying and selling authentic rare shoes. We have shoes in our store, which range from £300 to £150,000. It's ludicrous, but it's ludicrous because people don't understand the industry. People sell fine art for millions and that's socially accepted, but streetwear and rare collectible streetwear and sneakers is a massive market which we've tapped into and alhamdulillah to this day we are independently owned 
the group is owned by myself and my two brothers independently. We don't have any external shareholders or any investors or any external funding, which has allowed us to make the decisions we are able to make very quickly. Anything we want to do, make decisions very quickly. Subsequently, we were then approached by Adidas as a global player to then create a shoe care range that was branded Adidas. So we now manufacture and sell every single Adidas shoe care product that there is worldwide. If you look behind the can, you will see Undercover Brothers. So that is a product made by us and sold under the Adidas license. That's mad. So again, it, it was a passion of ours. We followed our passion. We worked with people, which I learned from a lot of people growing up. But more importantly, we stayed united as brothers. And being Muslim was a very important part of our life. And Islam has led many of our decisions. And Alhamdulillah, it's just a joy to wake up every morning and work on something that you really love doing. Jazakallah khairan, Now that's really fascinating, insightful stuff. And perhaps we should get you on because I know there's iftar is coming up. We could probably go for hours and still... (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't watching the time. No worries at all. That's my responsibility as the host, right? I have to keep track of these things. But Naman, it has been a real pleasure to have you on and learn from your insights. And we wish you absolutely the best. I see people like you as kind of a pride for us, really, for the Ummah, that we have the second fastest growing company in the UK, which is run by three ordinary Muslim blokes who grew up in a humble northwest and then after that in London, like everyone else. But then, alhamdulillah, they've done really well. So, jazakallah khair for that. Alhamdulillah. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, inshallah, we hope to see you go on to even bigger and better things in the future. Definitely. Like I said, a very important part for us. Islam has played an integral part of our growth and our success. Obviously, we know we can do our best, but we know the all-knower and the creator of all good things is Allah. So we make dua every day and we're very thankful for the blessings and what we're exposed to in business. We've got very good relationships in the retail game which have allowed us to flourish and we continue to do that and it's very important for others who work around us to be inspired but more importantly to see that this is a Muslim business. Alhamdulillah we've got a few reverts within our business who have transitioned to Islam and it's humbling to see people find Islam desirable even in business when we're doing business with them. So yes we will continue to do what we love doing and Jazakallah for all the support and the kind words we've always got and encouragement we have all throughout this process. And our families, we've sacrificed so much in terms of our time and working late hours. And Alhamdulillah, we, we share the success with everyone. Jazakallah khair, Naman. It's been an absolute pleasure. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.